Hello, and thanks for joining us for this month's edition of The Scope of Things, a no-nonsense look at the realities and enigmas of clinical research based on those closest to the action who aim for great and, if need be, are willing to shake things up. I'm Deborah Borfitz, Senior Science Writer for Clinical Research News. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Jason LaRoche, Director, Janssen Clinical Innovation at Janssen Research and Development, LLC, who is looking to seriously green up the clinical trial enterprise and doing more than just giving lip service to the idea. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thanks, Deborah. I'm excited to be here with you today. I invited Jason to the show to talk about his efforts at Janssen to quantify the greenhouse gas emissions associated with different clinical trial activities, which is interesting in its own right, but also to learn more about his ambition to scale those efforts together with industry peers who are likewise interested in making clinical research more environmentally sustainable. But let's start with what you have cooking in-house, Jason. Tell us about how you've gone about mapping various clinical trial processes based on their carbon footprint and what you've learned so far. Thanks, Deborah. To start off, I want to overview the objective of this initiative to help ground the topic. As a global pharmaceutical company, we aim to ensure that the benefits of our therapies developed at Janssen are not offset by negative environmental health impacts from our operations. We know that if the global healthcare sector were a country, it would be the world's fifth largest emitter of greenhouse gases, and clinical research is a contributor. To reduce our impact on the environment, we're working to understand our overall GHD or greenhouse gas emissions and collaboratively champion best practices with others across the industry. So this kind of comes in a multi-step process. And step one is to understand the climate impact of our global clinical trial operations by measuring individual study activities. For example, let's take a commonly performed clinical test such as a chest Mm X-ray. Because we're a heavily regulated industry and we're very process-oriented, that chest X-ray, we can count on to be performed pretty much the same way every time, which gives us this really reliable outcome for it. Mm -hmm. And so if we measure the greenhouse gas emissions associated with administering a chest X-ray, then we can pretty much count on that same amount of greenhouse gas emissions to be emitted every time it's performed. There might be some discrepancies based on different sites and suppliers of study activities, but this is where the general approach um, allows for replicability. And I'll dive into these specific nuances a bit later in our discussion, but by creating an inventory of measures for different site activities, we can more easily review the time and event schedule for a new study design plug in the associated greenhouse gas emissions estimated for each activity and sum them up to get an overall footprint for that trial. Uh, You can pretty much kind of imagine each trial activity as being like a building block or or almost like the the toy bricks that kids build with, um, with a a defined amount of of greenhouse gas emissions. Hmm. And so once we have that inventory, Um, We can start to form a picture of the environmental impact of a trial. We can begin to predict the emissions for new trial designs. And this will allow sustainability to start to co-inform trial designs as we swap or remove different trial activities or building blocks to find a study design that delivers on safety, efficacy, speed, and cost, while also reducing our impact on the environment. And once we have quantified the climate impact of our clinical trial operations and identified the hotspots or the primary sources of greenhouse gas emissions, we can move on to step two, which is to develop tools and knowledge materials for our employees. 
to allow sustainability to co-inform their daily decisions and to work with our senior leadership to begin establishing quantitative goals for reducing our climate footprint. Pragmatically, we need to quantify our starting point and set ourselves up to measure our progress before we can set goals for reducing our footprint. Yeah, that makes makes sense and very well thought out. Uh, it's just, so the goal here is to build an inventory of measures that could then be used to calculate the total projected greenhouse gas emissions for any new trial at the protocol design phase, therefore making sustainability a consideration when deciding what should happen when and where and how in a study, I believe. And, and this sounds really complicated. Can, can you give me a for instance here, especially as you have pointed out, a, a trial might involve hundreds, if not thousands of discrete activities and the emissions they're responsible for might vary by location. Sure. Um, and this is the big challenge for us. Um, because at Janssen, we typically, we have about, we have over 10,000 clinical sites involved in our clinical trials today. So that's 10,000 different sites. And then you think about each activity performed at that site, mm-hmm. right, at those different sites, and you suddenly get to hundreds of thousands of different measures because that chest X-ray that's performed at say Emory University in Atlanta might be different from those performed at say UCSF in San Francisco or Sloan mm-hmm. Kettering as a site. Yeah. It might differ based on the type of machine used, um, the room it's in, the local climate. Obviously a hospital in the tropics is going to be used, consuming a lot more energy for air conditioning than say one in a temperate area. Mm. And so all of those different factors start to come into play to create these very different measures uh, for where for an activity, depending on what site it's performed at or which supplier is performing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certainly you also have to look at the source, source of uh, energy mix for a site. Um, the site that's getting its electricity from renewable energy or nuclear energy will have a smaller footprint than one that sources its power from a coal-fired power plant. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is where that challenge comes, where we get these perhaps hundreds of thousands of different potential variations. Yeah, wow. I mean, how then do you do you ever get a sense of how carbon-intensive sort of an average clinical trial might be? I mean, is that definable? Well, we're a bit early in our clinical trial mapping process to provide insight into the average clinical trial, but we can share our learnings from a retrospective analysis of a phase one study that we just wrapped up this year. Okay. For background on the trial design setup, the study involved a single site in Europe where we screened 140 subjects. We randomized 28 patients into treatment. Um, Those randomized patients underwent six nights of inpatient care where their diet was carefully monitored before continuing treatment at home for an additional four weeks. The typical randomized patient made seven visits to the site during the trial. And we found that for this modest phase one study, we generated 17.6 metric tons of CO2 equivalents. Um, And and I recognize metric tons of CO2 equivalents is a very esoteric term, but- sounds huge. (laughs) If you take the, the the average petrol fueled car, I think it generates around 4.1 kilograms of, of CO2 equivalents per mile driven. So you could basically drive your average petrol fueled car around the earth 1.7 times 
Um, that's the circumference of the Earth, 1.7 times uh, before you would generate the equivalent amount of emissions for this one study. Oh, geez, that is scary. And when we looked at the sources of the overall trial emissions, we found that the majority were from patient travel to and from the site. That made up roughly 30% of the emissions. Because um, you think of those 140 subjects, each of them were making a visit to the site for screening. And then once you had the patients who were randomized, they were making seven visits. And this was a phase one study conducted at a site in a large European city using healthy volunteers in the local community. So these were, you wouldn't expect them to be traveling a huge amount of distance. Mm. Um, I mean, if you think about our phase two or phase three studies, particularly compared in the US, um, where you have patients who actually have a disease, they have more of an incentive to participate and to travel further to try to gain access to a trial. Um, I know I've, I've seen some some estimates where the typical U.S. patient travels 100 miles to reach their site. Um, so I would expect those emissions to be even higher in a, a phase two or phase three study than what we just saw in the simple phase one. Yeah, certainly something worth addressing under these circumstances and with these kind of hard numbers to kind of back up your case. Um but I want to ask on a related note, can you say yet which activities in future trials would be most affected by these emission insights at Janssen, um, and perhaps more universally? Well, since patient travel is responsible for about 30% of emissions in our phase one study, um, right away that jumps out for, for most folks on our end to say, well, how do we reduce that patient travel? Yeah. And naturally, people start to think decentralized trial yeah. models, and those could have a big impact on those reductions. So allowing clinical trial patients to use local labs rather than traveling to the sites um, or leveraging alternative points of care, such as retail pharmacies that are close to the patient's homes, those can help make a trial more patient-centric, um, but also reduce the climate impact of the study. Uh, incorporating telemedicine and other digital health technologies um, can also reduce the visit to the need to visit a site um, and have an impact. Yep. Uh, the one consideration I do want to note, though, is that while technology can be a great enabler, it can also have its own environmental impact in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and associated e-waste. Hmm. Uh, so we need to be really careful that the manufacture and deployment of new hardware doesn't contribute further to the environmental problem that we're trying to address. Mm, good point. Um, we can aim to, one thing we should do is try to aim to incorporate software solutions that leverage the hardware that's already out there, leveraging the smartphones that many patients already have, um, and also leveraging other technology that patients might have before adding something new to the equation. I know we've been doing some work like with patient voice and using Alexa devices, um, so I think, yeah, try to leverage the hardware that's already out there first. Yep. Makes total sense. Good thinking. Um, okay. Let, let's turn now to your efforts to create a pre-competitive space for sustainability. Who is Janssen partnering with currently and exactly who is doing what to enable a more collaborative approach to reduce the industry's collective carbon footprint? I mentioned earlier that one large challenge to an activity-based approach of measuring greenhouse gas emissions is just the sheer number of activities and their permutations that are out there, depending on the supplier or site where they're performed. Mm -hmm. Measuring all those is going to be a daunting challenge for any one sponsor. And this is where I see the greatest value in establishing a pre-competitive space for sustainability and trying to take a collective approach to capturing those activity-based measures. 
At Janssen, we partnered with two organizations, the Sustainable Healthcare Coalition and the Pistoia Alliance to help us drive this effort. The Sustainable Healthcare Coalition, or the SHC, uh, they're a healthcare sector-led group involving both industry and academic institutions that seeks to identify the greatest opportunities inspire sustainable practices in healthcare. The Pistoia Alliance is a healthcare industry members organization that seeks to overcome common obstacles in pharma R&D. And both of these organizations have diverse membership bases, including both industry and academic clinical trial sponsors, CROs, and other healthcare entities. So by bringing those two organizations together, we now have over a dozen large pharma sponsors and CROs committed to this activity-based approach, as well as access to academic institutions as well, to start to measure what's the footprint of the, the activities happy at the sites, but also what's happening in trials that are sponsored by academia. That's great. And by treating sustainability measures as a non-competitive information sharing it with each other, we avoid duplication of effort. So we're not all chasing the exact same measures. Mm-hmm. And we can collectively build that comprehensive inventory of activity-based measures more quickly. We can also yeah. challenge like different entities, like our suppliers, take ownership of your own data, update your data. Um as you make improvements in your footprint. We can do this across all the healthcare entities. Wow, this just all makes so much sense. It's like, why didn't somebody start this sooner? It, it's what I'm finding most amazing and what I'm thinking of as we're going along here. You, you had pre- previously mentioned to me that, I guess next year already, uh, we could see a semi-public database for capturing and sharing activity based measures across partners. Um, Can you tell me more about that? And um, also, how long is it going to take to build a robust inventory of measures that's useful to the industry at large? And perhaps more importantly, where will the required resources come from? So to facilitate the sharing of activity-based measures across the industry, in early 2023, uh, we, as in the Sustainable Healthcare Coalition and the Pistoia Alliance, we plan to begin construction of a semi-public database for storing and sharing the activity-based measures um, and be able to deploy that in the second half of 2023. We see this database as being fundamental to our efforts to reduce climate emissions and enable industry benchmarking. So we'll be able to look across clinical trial activities and see who's performing a specific activity with the least greenhouse gas emissions. And then we can learn from each other and share best practices to foster a more sustainable industry approach. Um, One additional enabler that is critical to the success of this project is centered on establishing standard methodologies for each activity-based measure. We must ensure that our shared benchmarking approach, approach is standardized across sponsors, sites, and suppliers. Um, you want to be able to make that apples to apples comparison. And one component of the work we're doing in partnership with the SHC and Pistoia Alliance is developing and sharing these methods for measuring activities and working across the industry to gain acceptance and adoption. And I really need to stress that this is a broad industry effort. I know I'm here today speaking about this, but there's Mm -hmm. a lot of other folks involved. Um, I particularly want to call out Fiona Adshead from the SHC, Darius Gudier from Pistoia, Neil Makulop from AstraZeneca, and Jurgen Weiland from Novartis. And I also want to specifically call out my counterpart at Nova Nordis, Candice Strange-Evison, who's been really helping drive this along. Um, and we've been working together, meeting regularly to just try to figure out this broader strategy. 
Um, it's good to have collaborators, something this large and complex. Uh, have regular regulators anywhere um, taken an interest in the sustainability question? And, and if not, do, do you think they will ever be involved? Regulators are already starting to take action. In February of this year, the French presidency of the European Union released 16 principles for digital health. And four of those 16 principles focused on understanding and mitigating the environmental impact of digital health devices. Hmm. These 16 principles will eventually be transformed into formal policy and regulation. We're also seeing interest in action from major healthcare systems. So the UK's National Health Services or the NHS, they've committed to net zero by 2045, which is based carbon neutrality by 2045. And they have also set a deadline of 2028, where they've said for all of their suppliers, if you want to continue to do business with the NHS, you need to have a climate plan that meets or exceeds the ambitions of the NHS. Wow. And second, you need to be fully transparent and provide product level environmental impact assessments for every product that they purchase. So at Janssen, we sell a lot of drug product to the NHS. So my mm -hmm. colleagues on the commercial side, they're busy measuring the impact of our drug products so they can give those estimates. On the clinical side, the NHS has started to take an interest in the climate impact of clinical research in the UK. They just haven't provided any specific details. But I personally anticipate that it's probably just a matter of time before we look to contract clinical sites in the UK and the NHS asks us to share a projection of the climate emissions for a particular clinical study and explain to them how is that study going to impact their climate ambitions if they participate in it. You are certainly on the front very front edge of this. Um, good work. And uh, I, I'm so excited to see where this is going to be going. Um, and, and you hinted this a moment ago, but uh, we, we we spoke, uh, I don't know, earlier this year, and you at that time were involved in efforts to reduce specifically specifically electronic waste from wearable devices, which of course are increasingly being used in clinical trials. You were talking about creation of a circular economy around digital health devices, where the goal is to design out waste and pollution by making products more creatively and doing it locally and with components that can be readily reused or remanufactured and perhaps even incentivizing people to return used products with mailback processes and physical collection points. Is this in any way part of your current initiative at Janssen or with industry collaborators, or is it is that another chapter for another time? Uh, this is a separate project, but okay. very much aligned to our current environmental strategy at Janssen, and I'd ha be happy to share an update. Um, this is a project that we kicked off just this past doc this this October uh, or October of this year called okay. Digital Health in the Circular Economy. It's a Horizons Europe funded project. And Janssen has partnered with a diverse set of stakeholders from industry, academia, uh, non and non-governmental organizations to develop holistic solutions to the emerging issue of e-waste from digital health devices. Uh, digital health is growing rapidly. In 2020, there were approximately 83 million wearable devices alone that were shipped to the EU market. And over the next five years, the volume of these devices is expected to grow at a compound annual growth rate of over 12%. Mm. And basically, if that trend continues, it means that the volume will double every six years. 
And the problem with these devices is that they're subject to unique biological and chemical contamination risks that prevent them from entering traditional electronics recycling streams. Hmm. If you think about like a wearable device that's been worn in close contact with the body, it could pose an infectious disease risk. Smart medication packaging like smart bottles and smart blisters can contain trace amounts of drug product posing a chemical contamination risk. And if you think of like a smart syringe or auto injector, then you have both risks with trace amounts of blood on the needle and residual drug product in the barrel of the syringe. Mm. Um, but because of these contamination risks, incineration for energy recovery has been the default option for these devices. Um, and that's not very good for the, for the environment. And in some parts of the world, it's throwing it into landfills, which is even worse. Mm. Um, so what we aim to do is find ways of remediating this contamination risk so that the devices that are already out there on the market can enter recycling streams. And I mentioned that the 83, millions of wearable, 83 million units of wearable devices shipped to the EU market in 2020, and we analyzed a cross-section of those devices and estimated that there were about 108 million euros of what is considered EU critical and precious raw materials like gold, silver, palladium, um, and such in those 83 million devices. Um, and that's an estimate that we put together back in 2021 before inflation took hold. Um, so there's definitely an economic value for recovery with just 108 million euros worth of material there. Yeah. A second consideration is creating new circular design principles and standards for future devices. So today, many digital health devices are designed for single use. For instance, a patient is discharged from a hospital to recover at home while their vitals are closely monitored using a wearable device. That wearable device might be worn for a few days, maybe a couple of weeks before the patient's finished with it, and then they discard the device. Mm -hmm. And there's just a huge amount of greenhouse gas emissions produced um, and precious raw materials consumed just manufacturing that device for that single use of such a short period of time. So we're trying to develop processes for refurbishing and remanufacturing these devices and their critical components to try to extend their useful life so that reusability becomes the focus and recycling is the option of last resort only when the device's usefulness has been fully depleted. Well, you must work 18 hours a day and um, get very little sleep. How you have time to <laughs> think about all these various aspects and, and, and all the little complexities and uh, details involved, um, it certainly would take a village, a team to to even imagine some of these enormous goals. Um, kudos to you for doing it, um, for giving it a go here. And um, I really, Jason, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Um, thank you for taking the time to raise awareness about just how carbon intensive clinical trials can be and why collaboration is the only way really to offset the negative environmental impacts. Good luck to you in making a measurable difference. Thanks, Deborah, for having me on the show and for the great discussion. I really look forward to sharing progress updates along our journey towards building a more sustainable future for clinical research. You got it. Um, and as always, a big thank you to everyone out there for listening in. For more straight talk on studies involving humans, visit clinicalresearchnewsonline.com. And if you're a clinical research professional, we hope also to see you at our next SCOPE conference where we make things happen. Bye for now.